This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. But we start with the rash of violence and shoplifting we're seeing in Vancouver stores. Last week, the Vancouver police announced they had arrested 130 suspects and seized 35 weapons in a crackdown on violent shoplifting in downtown Vancouver. But the mayhem still going on, including the daily turmoil at stores like the IGA grocery store on Robson, where they deal with incidents every single day. Now, I got Sergeant Steve Addison from the Vancouver Police Department standing by. But first, have a quick listen to this report from Global News reporter Jordan Armstrong. We're trying to recover the coffee from inside of his jacket, and uh, the individual starts punching, which starts a bit of a fistfight at the front of the store. A full-on rumble involving store security, the manager, and the shoplifting suspect. They get him outside, but he comes back in. More blows are exchanged. A security guard is punched in the face. Then a customer helps staff tackle the suspect. Every night there's an instance. (laughs) It's not one night or another night, it's every single night. Monday's melee was particularly violent. Both the manager and the security guard were taken to hospital. The owner of IGA on Robson says they catch or deter at least 10 shoplifters every night. We've had our grocery store manager assaulted. We've had our store manager chased around with a syringe. We've had numerous knives pulled. I've had a knife pulled on me. Uh, Police batons, bear spray, you name it, it's uh, it's the Wild West in the evening here. Police don't disagree. It is the norm, especially for for store owners downtown, and it is shocking to see uh, or to have patrons, um, store staff, LPOs being spat on, uh, assaulted, punched, kicked. Earlier this month, VPD wrapped a four-week initiative. Project Arrow resulted in 130 arrests and 268 criminal charges recommended to Crown. I'm appreciative of the, the police's efforts to try to deal with this, but it isn't a policing issue. It's a broader It's a broader issue, and uh, the violence is a symptom of these issues. The accused in this incident has a long criminal resume. Jeremy Thayer is charged with robbery. He was released the morning after his arrest. Essential frontline workers, tired of feeling under siege, tired of feeling unsafe. They're already nervous coming to work during the pandemic. Uh, This is just not what they needed at all. It's a really unfortunate situation that they've got to deal with uh, two crises at the same time. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Okay, great report there. Great report there by Global News reporter Jordan Armstrong. Let's discuss further now with my guest, Sergeant Steve Addison from the Vancouver Police Department. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Sergeant Addison, thanks for coming on. Morning, Mike. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, Sergeant Addison, when you hear a report like that, it, I think it really shows and defines clearly the problem that some of these merchants and retailers are, are dealing with down in downtown Vancouver. Like, how bad would, how bad is it out there? How would you describe it right now? Oh, it's a shop, violent shoplifting is a huge problem right now, not only in the downtown core, but uh, everywhere in yeah. uh, the city of Vancouver. I've just come back from uh, my weekend and I was reading through our overnight reports, so files that have been completed by police officers over the weekend. And there's a half dozen similar files where 
shoplifters have gone into stores. They've tried to escape with merchandise. They've been confronted by uh, staff or security guards or even other customers, and they've turned violent. So we're dealing on a daily basis with the violent shoplifters, people who are using needles and bear spray and uh, spitting on people, other uh, other instruments to uh, commit their crimes, and it's it's totally unacceptable. Okay, we saw some uh, real uh, crackdown by VPD last week with 130 arrests and 35 weapons seized. But as you just heard in that report from Global News reporter Jordan Armstrong, you know how often do the, the people who are arrested do they typically walk free the next day? That's, that's what we just heard in that report. You get you get a violent a violent shoplifting incident and a suspect is arrested and then released. Yeah, well, in this project that we ran from uh, January 12th to February 12th, um, we did arrest a number of people, 130 different people. A lot of the people that we were seeing were people who were already uh, either on probation or on bail for a previous shoplifting incident, people who had warrants, uh, people who had no-go, so court conditions not to go to specific stores and were were returning to those stores. Uh, We had a number of people that we arrested on more than one occasion during this uh, during this project that we ran. So, yeah, it is, a pro- it is a problem. We are seeing the same people over and over again. Okay, is that frustrating for police? I mean, is there any way to keep people, keep these people locked up, or they, that's just the system? They just, they walk the next day? Well, well, it, it's absolutely frustrating for us. Uh, we, we stay in our lane, right, Mike? We, yeah. we do yeah. our job. We re- respond to calls for police uh, service. We investigate. We recommend charges to Crown Council when uh, there is evidence of an offense. And um, from there, it's uh, a decision that's made uh, by the courts to decide whether or not people should be uh, remanded in custody or whether or not they should be released on bail. Right. Speaking of Sergeant Steve Addison from the Vancouver Police Department, we saw the other day, Sergeant, that uh, outside the IGA and Robson, where we we heard about the daily incidents there with 10 shoplifting incidents a day, it seems like they're dealing with on average. It's incredible. The VPD set up a surveillance unit. Is that right? Yeah, we, we've deployed our public safety trailer to um, Robson Street just in front of the store. Now, this I, I really feel for this these folks at the IJ. This is a oh, yeah. family-run business, the Sullivan family. I've met with them. I've talked to them about their issues, and they're dealing with these problems on a daily basis. Violent shoplifters almost every day. Between 2019 and 2020, they saw a 50% increase in shoplifting calls. So wow. we've worked with them closely, and uh, we're continuing to um, look for innovative and creative ways to tackle crime and respond to the community concerns. So we have deployed our public safety trailer. Uh, quite simply, it's a it's a trailer that has some cameras on it. Um, it's it's a tool that we use for crime prevention, um, and we deploy it occasionally um, at various places throughout the city when they're is crime and it acts as a deterrent and i should i should say mike that um there are cameras on this trailer that do record um the recordings are only pulled if there is an incident that needed needs to be investigated otherwise the video is overwritten every uh every three or four days and it's not retained okay has it made a difference down there in front of the iga store well, it's been down there since Friday. We're hoping it, yeah. it will make a difference. Time will tell. Um, we do use it as a deterrent, and, and in other areas of the city where we have deployed it, we have seen success in having it deter crime. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Take okay, care. I appreciate it a lot. That is Sergeant Steve Addison from the Vancouver Police Department. Uh, let's quickly check in now with Michael Geldert. He's a spokesperson for Safer Vancouver. Michael, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Mike. Can you tell me real quickly about Safer Vancouver? What do you guys do there? 
Sure. Save for Vancouver uh, was essentially April 2020, uh, a growing group of local residents, Emory Barnes, who saw needles in their park for the first time, got together, wanted to know what exactly was the policy that was informing all of this. That grew to 15,000 local residents who supported something different. In other words, we need effective policy that's actually going to make sure that we, we have kids who can play in parks and seniors who can take walks at night. What do you think about the situation we're seeing right now? I think it's an indication that we're well beyond the bubbling point. You know, we, we are very fortunate enough to be able to get a lot of buy-in from the community. So we have employees from all sorts of businesses downtown that are telling us about fires being lit in their bathrooms, um, you know, wow. people being spat at. Uh, they're, they're doing the cleanups inside their restaurants and they're getting, they're getting pricked with used needles. I mean, all sorts of things. So I think, unfortunately, what we're seeing is potentially just the tip of the spear. Uh, we're hoping that can be avoided, but I think there's a lot of catch-up that's going to have to be done. And, and it's unfortunately going to have to start with acceptance, I think, from all levels of government that you can't, you can't just go from zero uh, to 100 without actually talking to the people who are there. And that's the business owners, that's the people who live there. And that's the engagement that we just haven't seen in the last year. All right, welcome back to the show. It's breaking news at this hour. There's a news conference underway with uh, the federal government and the city of Vancouver on some rapid housing initiatives, just over $50 million. This is a previously announced uh, funding, but uh, the news here is uh, the government's getting set to buy a Days Inn hotel. And this is part of the housing initiative, especially focused on the Strathcona Park homeless camp. So that is happening right now. Coming up a little later in this hour, I'll speak to Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Get the latest on that for you. So make sure you keep it locked right here. Right now, though, we're talking about the uptick in violence and shoplifting we're seeing in some downtown Vancouver stores. I got open phone lines right now. So if you phone right now, you're probably going, you certainly will get through. So give me a call. Tell me what you're seeing out there, especially if you work downtown or you work in some of these stores. Have you noticed an increase in kind of shoplifting or violence or confrontations? Phone me right now. Tell me what you think. 604 280 9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. You heard the frustration there from the police officer we had on earlier, Sergeant Steve Addison from the VPD, talking about the dozens of arrests that they made last week. A lot of the people will make that are arrested will make a first appearance and then they just they just walk free, including some of the people who were arrested was at some of the violent confrontations there at the IGA store. On Robson Street, you get an arrest, and then the person arrested is walking out the door the very next day. Phone me and tell me what you think of that. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. My guest is Michael Gelder, Safer Vancouver. Michael, what, what do you think of the, the criminal justice system and the way it's responding to the situation right now? It's a good question. Um, I'm actually a lawyer, and uh, I, I think... Part of the issue here is that they're being overtaxed and we have a lot of elected representatives who've put um, members of law enforcement really on the front lines on issues that are, are going to be very challenging for them to be able to continue rinse and repeating. And, you know, Safer Vancouver has stepped into the fray to provide sort of a wraparound service here to say, well, if we can at least make sure that our, our, uh, our, our police forces have the information that they need about, well, who's, who's still in this area? Is this someone who's repeatedly, repeatedly offending? Um, we've seen them three or four times. Uh, that's useful information, and the hope really is that we can put them in a position to then put additional pressure on um, you know, uh, 
the the lawyers who are going to be responsible for making okay. sure that potentially they are going to they are they're not going to be released the next day. Okay, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to John on the line in Maple Ridge. Hey, John. Hey, good morning, guys. How you doing? Good. What do you think? Well, I just wanted to share. I, I worked in retail, have for 20 years. Uh, we do have a location in uh, downtown Vancouver. I would say, first off, that VPD uh, do an absolutely incredible job of supporting. Uh, the challenge is more with the legal system. And I'll just share an example. We had a violent uh, shoplifter uh, steal under 5000 uh, We arrested him uh, with the VPD support. Uh, he showed up in court, uh, had a, a notice to appear uh, for a future date, uh, which was about six months later. During that six months, uh, this individual came back into our location, violently shoplifted another eight times. We arrested him every single time. Uh, and then because of the way the legal system works, every theft was individually charged at under 5000 uh-huh. where if you were able to combine them, it would have been a theft over 5000 case, which would have been heard earlier. Um, and then this individual would have been probably locked up for a, a lot longer. So I think that's part of the, the issue. Um, and it hasn't. It, it's not something new. This has been going on for Years in the downtown core. Yeah. The only difference is it's just getting more and more violent because yeah. the the lack of holding these individuals accountable um, and locking them up. Uh, okay. they, they literally have zero recourse. John, thanks a lot for the call. Michael, do you think that do you think the VPD is doing all it can right now? We I talked to Sergeant Addison about the trailer that they parked outside the Robson Street. Uh, IGA. And by the way, I just got a text message from the owner of the IGA store in Robson ever since that surveillance trailer from the police was parked outside the store. And he tells me it's only been there a few days, but uh, the issues have since been, it's been better um, at the store since that surveillance trailer was parked outside the IGA. Uh, he tells me on a text message here that a few customers have commented that they're glad to see it there. We just got a minute left. Michael, what do you think about that? Do you think the police need to do more of that kind of thing? I think, unfortunately, it's it's going to be a need. Um, that, that IGA is not the only one. There's there's a number of grocery stores in the downtown area, from Nestor's to another IGA, uh, Urban Fair, and, and we're getting reports from employees there who feel something more needs to get done because the rinse-repeat simply is just not working. Uh, some of them have actually uh, gone beyond uh, what they should be asked to be doing okay. uh, to, to evict people out of their stores. Thank you for coming on today. You bet. All right, welcome back to the show. We've talked a lot about the federal government's uh, gun ban, the gun buyback program. I had Bill Blair, the federal public safety minister, on the show last week. One of the things the government is doing here is they are banning airsoft guns. Airsoft. It's like a sport, kind of like paintball. It doesn't shoot paintballs, though. It shoots like plastic pellets. The government banning these guns. There's a lot of airsoft businesses in Canada. What's going to happen to them? Probably be out of business. Let's talk about it now with my guest, Dayton Bowder. He is an airsoft enthusiast. He runs the very popular YouTube channel, House Gamers Airsoft, uh, which I've just been checking out. More than 1 million subscribers, over 140 million views on his uh, YouTube channel. Uh, Dayton, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. What is airsoft for people who don't know what it is? Can you describe it? So the most simple way to describe airsoft is like you did to compare it to paintball. So in, in the same way that it's a shooting sport, um, it, it uses a marker 
to you know shoot people on the enemy team to let them know they've been hit. But unlike paintball, it doesn't use a mark like uh, like the paint exploding. Yeah. Um, it's it's an honor sport. It's based completely on the enemy accepting the fact that they've you know been outdone, and uh, and that's and that's how you play the game. So inherently, it's it's already a sport off of you know people wanting the sport to continue and be a successful thing. Right, and shoot, they doesn't shoot paintballs. They shoot pla- Is it plastic pellets? Is that what the guns yeah, shoot? It's a cornstarch-based uh, plastic pellet, uh, biodegradable, nothing bad for the environment. Um, they're about six millimeters wide. Uh, they're not. They're not anything that's going to hurt anybody. Okay, does it hurt you? Like I, I've just I watched a couple of your videos and I see people are wearing kind of you know they're wearing eye protection, they're wearing helmets, they're wearing gear, right? So it doesn't hurt. Does it hurt when you get hit with one of these things? So obviously the number one thing in airsoft is safety. Everybody yeah. who plays airsoft will be wearing goggles because getting shot in the eye is not oh, something that we want no. to happen. Yeah. Uh, but it's like with hockey, you wear a helmet. You know, any, any sport has dangers to it, and that's something that we respect more than anything else. Um, but no, airsoft is incapable of really seriously injuring anybody. I mean, I've done it every weekend for the past five years, and I'm wow. still running around talking about it. So, Okay, look, it looks like a fun, fun game, a fun sport. What do you think about yeah. the government banning, banning airsoft guns? So I think Bill C-21 uh, is actually kind of ridiculous uh just because of some of the situations that it's putting airsoft owners in uh but honestly i think airsoft is a great tool that people who are supporting this bill should be getting behind more so than trying to get rid of uh and if you give me a chance i'd love to touch on that sure yeah please go ahead c21 what it's going to do is uh redefine airsoft guns um as a prohibited device so that means that they're no longer something you can get by getting a license they're just illegal. So I wouldn't be able to transfer ownership of any of my airsoft guns. I wouldn't be able to sell them, import new guns, nothing like that. It would be gone. So any YouTube channel that covers it, any business that sells airsoft guns, any field that uh, hosts airsoft games would be shut down. There's, there's no more, there's no future with the Bill C-21 as it stands that allows airsoft to exist. Okay, Which that's, in- that's incredible. That's incredible. Obviously, bad news for you and uh, and your friends and the businesses that are that are in this sport. Let me play this here for you, Dayton. This is Bill Blair, uh, the federal cabinet minister responsible. He's the minister of public safety. We talked about this on the show last week, and I asked him why is the government banning these airsoft guns. And here's what he said: What the police have urged governments to do, and what we've listened to, is banning those weapons that that are exact replicas of highly dangerous weapons. Because in, in, and in fact, those 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 devices are used in crime. They, you know, they cause serious injury. Okay, he says that they're exact replicas of dangerous weapons. They can be used in crimes. They call they cause injuries. Your thoughts? So, uh, there are three points that I'd like to bring up with that. Number one, I can, I can understand that airsoft guns do look realistic. And that's one of the draws to airsoft. Um, but that is one of the things that makes airsoft a wonderful tool that people who support this bill should be utilizing rather than trying to get rid of so to answer this question i want to pose you with a hypothetical say this bill gets passed and i'm no longer able to own airsoft guns the only way for me to stay in the business of shooting sports would be to purchase a real firearm an airsoft gun that has never killed anybody or hurt anybody in the history of time is now becoming illegal and the only way for me to continue my business and to continue my love of guns 
would to be to buy a real gun and go to the range because airsoft guns would be considered too dangerous. Well, okay. When when people are talking about the dangers of airsoft guns, I'd also just like to say that most of the time when airsoft guns are used in statistics of crime, they're not used in the correct way. So airsoft guns aren't actually tracked for crimes. They're lumped into other problems when somebody's house is being, you know, raided for uh, some other call and they find airsoft guns in the father's closet or something like that. They're confiscated and added to the situation. Um, and once so, again, so there I have been there have been some cases where airsoft guns have been used in uh, criminal yeah. activity. Is that, is that so, correct? Yeah, I do. I do yeah. agree with that. Um, airsoft guns have been used for robberies and stuff like that. But I know that I am smart enough that I have no idea why, you know, criminals rob places and break laws. All I know is that it's not the airsoft gun in the guy's hand that's telling him to do that. There are underlining problems before that guy decides, I'm going to take an airsoft gun to go rob a place, you know? Okay. Speaking of Dayton Bowder, he is an airsoft enthusiast. He runs the uh, House Gamers Airsoft channel, which has more than a million followers. Dayton, I, I didn't really know very much about this sport at all, almost nothing, before this ban came out. Uh, and yet, when I look into it, I, I find it, it's much bigger than I thought. Like, when I look at your YouTube channel, a million subscribers, 140 million views, I mean, how big is this sport in Canada, and will this ban, like, put a lot of small businesses out of business? So, in Canada, Airsoft is actually a growing business. Um, I have been playing it for four years uh, in Canada uh, at the fields, like, I would consider professionally, you would call it. Um, and the growth that I've seen of Airsoft is amazing. The amount of numbers we get out, Pre-corona, during summertime, we were up to 200, 300 people per day on the weekends. It's a, it's a huge sport, and it's not something that's just in Canada. It's across the world. I've had the opportunity through my YouTube channel to travel around the world playing, seeing how different countries do it. In fact, Airsoft was actually originated in Japan, of all places. So it's, a, it's actually a worldwide sport. It's not something just in Canada, but it is a huge sport in Canada. And a lot of these businesses that like myself that make their money off of airsoft yeah they're they're gonna have nowhere to turn there's no there's no room in the current uh writing of bill c21 for airsoft to exist okay what is your message to the government on this so my message to the government is pretty simple i'm not going to claim that i understand the complexities of how to write a gun legislation bill all i know is that there is no reason why a responsible adult cannot own an airsoft gun And I don't know if there needs to be something added in to specifically, uh, it is, I have it written down here, uh, section 84, subsection 3.2. That's where we find the real issue. Um, If there can be something added in there, a provision that protects airsoft guns and other air-powered rifles that shoot under 500 feet per second, a speed that, through my experience, is not dangerous at all, um, I think as long as they put that in, they're going to have protections for airsoft that will last for a long time and will couldn't protect they, the future. Couldn't they design new airsoft guns that look like, I don't know, a, you know, a, a space-age weapon or something, something that looks like a toy that doesn't so, look like a real gun? Yes and no. Um, of course, you can design an airsoft gun to look however you want. Um, primarily, airsoft guns right now look like real guns, and that's the selling point of airsoft. Uh, yeah. You could produce airsoft guns that look different, but currently the way that Bill C-21 is written out, we don't know 
if even we change them to look like space guns, if they'd be protected. And yeah. people in the airsoft community haven't been consulted in any way for any information when C21 was being written. So wow. if we do change how we play this sport, we invest all that money into making new guns that look different. What's to stop somebody from creating, you know, the next bill C21 that says, okay, Hands up. you know, we're not worried about guns looking scary anymore. We're worried about the projectiles. It's like, I would rather airsoft be legally recognized so that we can protect it and self-regulate rather than having to constantly wiggle our way through loopholes in the government, which is okay. what we're doing right now. Dayton, it's an interesting issue. We continue to follow it closely. Thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate you giving me the This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. All right, welcome back. Time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Morning, Keith. Another busy week. Okay, big announcement coming down up at the bottom of the hour here, 1030. That's when we'll get this uh, vaccine plan rollout. We're going to bring people that live. What are you anticipating? Well, we expect to get some details over how people over the age of 80 are going to get notified um, and how they can get their vaccinations in the month of March. Uh, they're going to be treated differently than other age cohorts. I mean, that, there's not going to be a website for them uh, for online. It's more of person-to-person or traditional means of communication because they're not they're not as technologically comfortable with the Internet or with smartphones or iPhones. So that's going to be look different than other age cohorts. Uh, in April is when people under the age of 80 start getting vaccinated. A couple of things I'm going to be looking for today, and Dr. Henry and Adrian Dix have talked about this, the sudden emergence of AstraZeneca vaccine yeah. ahead of schedule. What does that do to the timeline? The original plan was to vaccinate certain essential service workers, um, which were pretty broadly defined, uh, not based on their age, but based on their profession. So we're talking about first responders, uh, food processing plant workers, uh, some truck drivers, potentially even teachers. They could go first, uh, potentially, if AstraZeneca gets here. So they, so could, they could move up if that we get was more the vaccine. Yeah, that was the original plan, yeah. was to have them at, at the front of the queue. It's been replaced by an age-only or age-based rollout plan in five-year yeah. increments. So in AstraZeneca now on the horizon, we're going to get more than 50,000 doses in, in March. AstraZeneca is not seen as necessarily as effective on older people, but Pfizer and Moderna are proven to be very effective on um, older people. So it'll yeah. be interesting to see if that affects the timeline. The other thing uh, Dr. Henry has talked about in the past is potentially changing the, the length of time between the first and second doses. Yeah. We don't know. Perhaps that's going to be uh, looked at as well. Uh, so those are some of the things uh, we're going to be looking at and expecting at 10.33. Okay, phase two of the vaccine plan rollout is, is the one that they'll be concentrating on, but I, I anticipate there's also going to be some information about the phase three that could be coming later in April. Mm -hmm. So we'll, we should be able, we should get more information, more detail about how this staged rollout is going to happen, right? Yeah, and I think one thing that's becoming clear with the emergence of these, these, uh, these approvals of these new vaccines, AstraZeneca approved ahead of schedule. Johnson & Johnson, just approved by the FDA in the United States, likely to yeah. be approved by Health Canada. We could have two new vaccines right. coming our way on top of Pfizer and Moderna, and that will change the timeline. It's quite possible we're going to get a lot more people um, uh, with first doses uh, ahead of the timeline that was established a few months ago. That'd be awesome. Let's hope we hear that at the bottom of the hour here. Will people be able to select which vaccine they get, or you just got to get what they give you? 
My understanding is that um, your your vaccine is still determined by your age group, yeah. um, and right now it's of uh, uh, Pfizer and Moderna. Because some people might be looking at that AstraZeneca vaccine with the, what was it, sixty two percent, sixty percent effective rate, and say, yeah. well, you know, maybe I want the the more effective one. Yeah, so I think the way it would likely work, I don't know for sure, but if uh, AstraZeneca comes on board, um, and if you fall into a category in which you're qualified to get it, again, these broadly defined essential service categories, um, I think it would probably be an option. You know, you wouldn't be required to have it necessarily. Okay, okay live at the bottom of the hour, we're going to bring you that uh, news conference on the vaccine plan rollout. The BC legislature actually back in session today with a new session today, correct? Just above us. Yeah. Uh, What's two, happening two there? Two floors up. Uh, the legislature's back in session at 10 o'clock this morning um it's uh it's a another virtual session there's minimal i think there's less than tw- there's maximum just about 25 people allowed in the chamber at any time so no uh, not all 87 mlas in there um uh, seven bills expected to be introduced between now and mid-april i believe uh no throne speech today that'll come later it's sort of uh, two sessions in one we've got mm. the continuation of the session before then they'll be proroguing it and starting a new session um, in April when we have the budget. Very unusual. We usually have the budget by now in early February. That's not coming for some time. So it's, again, mm. this unique pandemic-type session. Okay. Uh, but question period uh, begins. And it'll be interesting what the Liberals focus on because they really didn't land any punches last time because uh, partisan politics wasn't really part of the agenda. Now maybe that's different. Okay, we'll see. Uh, and there were some anti-vaxxers protesting outside, small protest. Yeah, I ran the gauntlet of or not anti-maskers, uh, I guess they were. Yeah, anti-maskers. Yeah. Quite also um, uh, pro-churches as well. There's okay. about a dozen of them out there, uh, right outside uh, p- public safety ministry. They want the churches reopened. Yes. Okay. Speaking of which, the the churches that are fighting the shutdown of in-person religious services back in court today. Let's have a listen to Paul Jaffe here. He's the lawyers of lawyer for the churches who are arguing to have their doors opened again. Here he is. Yesterday's letter. Um, was a uh, what I consider to be a very, very small step in the right direction. The churches are, are no longer prohibited completely from in-person worship services, but certain conditions have been imposed. Okay, he's, he's commenting there on a letter that allowed some of these churches to hold outdoors. outdoor services, outdoors. right? Yeah, outdoor sessions um, in, I think, open-air tents. Uh, we've seen some uh, synagogue, at least one synagogue has been given permission of, to do that as well, but not in-person indoor um, uh, religious services are being authorized by health authorities right now. But again, this is an evolving situation. As we get into warmer weather, I wonder if some of these uh, restrictions uh, will be relaxed or whether they'll be enforced if we get the variants of concern suddenly taking root with high case numbers what we haven't seen so far. Okay, we continue to follow that one very closely. We followed uh, Donald Trump's, uh, did you watch Trump's speech at CPAC? Okay, so here is Trump uh, teasing the audience uh, at this CPAC. This was his first his first speech since losing the White House, and here he is hinting that he might he might run again. Who knows? I may even decide to beat them for a third time. Okay. Okay. One of the things I find interesting about Trump here is a guy who lost the White House. The Republicans lost the Senate. They lost the House. He was impeached twice. He lost the popular vote twice, and they still love him. And then he's saying, I'm, I might do it again. They're going crazy. They love him. Like, what? what is up with that? Why Why? Well, why do that, they move on from this I guy? I think that base is shrinking, though. I, you, got, you got Mitt Romney. You had uh, 11 Republicans bolted against him. So but it's a significant base in the, in the Republican oh, yeah, Party, but it's not, a, it's not a big enough base to win, as we saw in the last election. He got trounced. 
And there's no evidence to suggest that he's going to do any better next time. So the Republicans, I think, are absolutely petrified of this because if they had a more centrist right um, standard bearer than someone like Trump, they would have a shot at the White House well, yeah. and regaining the Senate and the Congress, and it's just not going to happen. I don't him. know why they would go with him again. The, I the mean, demographics are shifting. We, the most important election result in November was in Georgia. When the Democrats won Georgia, that was a proverbial game changer. It shows the demographics have shifted in the South. They don't work to Trump's favor. They don't work to the Republicans' favor unless they change uh, their standard bearer. Let me play another Trump clip here for you. This is him speaking at this speech on the weekend, and here he is talking about the potential to run a new political party, Donald Trump. We're not starting new parties. You know, they kept saying, he's going to start a brand new party. We have the Republican Party. It's going to unite and be stronger than ever before. I am not starting a new party. That was fake news. Fake news. No. Wouldn't that be brilliant? Let's start a new party and let's divide our vote so that you can never win. No, we're not interested in that. Okay, because there was speculation he might start something called a Patriot Party or maybe some other well, name, he's, but he's ruling he, it out there. He's figured out the danger of a split vote for the Republicans. He, all, yeah. The Democrats would love to see another party led by Trump aside from the Republican Party. But again, that's got to scare a lot of Republicans like Mitt Romney and the other senators who voted against Trump because they're losing control of their party to someone who's uh, on the fringe. Okay, uh, let me play this real quick because Global News uh, reminded their viewers about the 20-year anniversary of an earthquake that happened uh, in Seattle, uh, February 28th, 20, 2001, so 20 years ago, and here's what that report sounded like. It's 10.55 a.m., and the quake that everybody feared would strike the Northwest does. At City Hall, the mayor was about to convene a press conference. We're at the top floor of the municipal building. The building just shook and swayed like you wouldn't believe. Okay, 20 years ago. Did you feel that one? Do you remember it? Uh, I was. I got a lot of grief because I told everybody I was actually walking to work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was at 11 right, o'clock right, in yeah, the morning, yeah. remember? <laughs> so that was a, my old colleague Brian Coxford reporting there. And Al Cohen, one of our top um, camera people, uh, still with us, still working with us. He was the camera there in Seattle that day. It was quite – but it was, again, a um, reminder, people in the in the legislature here – if you were on, if I recall, if you were on the third floor, people felt it. You could you, feel it. I felt it. Yeah, I was but, in the press gallery that day, yeah. and I could just you could feel a little rumble. But if you were in the basement where we are now, they couldn't feel it. All right, welcome back. Keith Baldry's Baldry's Beat. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Demora in Vancouver. Hello. Hi, my name's Deborah. Like Deborah, I'm sorry. Deborah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I do not believe that churches should be allowed to open. Um, those that were sticking their finger to the government, you know, it's like, okay, um, I'm sorry, I want them in jail. You, no one's understanding. This is not about human rights. Well, it is in a sense that everybody has a right to live and to endanger other people's lives to me is an act, is a criminal act. I okay, well, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. I don't, they're not going to go to jail, but it'll be interesting to see what happens in court because they actually have got a pretty good argument on a constitutional ground, on a Charter of Rights and Freedoms ground, and especially in the argument, look, if you're going to allow the bars and restaurants and gyms to be open, why can't the churches be open? Yeah, and religious services, re religious practices are constitutionally recognized and protected. Sure, of course. Restaurants and bars and shopping are not yeah. constitutionally protected. So it's going to be interesting, but the judge, uh, the chief justice who's hearing this, his language in, in rejecting the government's bid for an injunction here 
gave the impression that he just doesn't think there's a role for him in this dispute. Now, it'll be interesting whether he revisits that in, in his ruling, but it's, it's not a cut-and-dried uh, situation. Well, what I'm waiting to see is if the judge says to the government, look, can you justify this? Can you show me why this infringement on charter rights that are protected is justified? Have we had outbreaks in churches in British Columbia? Show me the evidence. Yeah, well, and in their preparation for the injunction, some of the evidence was put in front of the judge that there yeah. have been transmission events in uh, some uh, church establishments. But again, um, is it enough to uh, allow him to side with, the, with public health on this? Yeah. Or And public health is also arguing that people have a constitutional right to their health. And if that health is jeopardized, by people engaging in this type of activity. I mean, where does where does the okay. scales of justice come down on? Okay, that's in court today. Let's go to Peter on the line in Burnaby. Hey, Peter. Yeah, I'm going to take up this subject. And actually, Mike, I sent you uh, an article by uh, writer Anthony Roy. Uh, there, there is absolute evidence that hasn't been widely shared that shows the level of transmission in churches, religious institutions, is like 0.25 of 1% compared to... 0.99% in gyms. So, I, huh. frankly, I don't think a judge should be ruling on this. I think the government needs to take a second look at this, and they need to do what is what they themselves say should be data-driven decisions. So, from my standpoint, there is absolutely no evidence to support that churches should not be allowed to I, continue. Okay. Peter, thanks for the call. I, I would personally like to see if, if the government could find a way forward here to allow churches to op reopen safely. Uh, I mean, right now you've got a very small number of them breaking the rules, but there is kind of a sense of optimism right now from Dr. Bonnie Henry. Mm. We've got the vaccine rollout happening here at the yeah. bottom of the hour. The weather is getting nicer. Um, could we see a relaxation of these restrictions here in the weeks ahead? Yeah, but not right now, I don't think. I mean, she made that clear last week. The case numbers, she looks, public health officials, and it's not just her, it's her whole team. They look at three things in particular. The daily case number of COVID-19, uh, which has not been dropping. It's been no. plateauing at 400, 500 cases a day. The positivity rate, which is, we'd like to get down to at least 5%. It's now approaching 7%, 8% in the Fraser Health Authority. That's a troubling number. And then the R number, the reproductive number, how many people are infected by one person's case. We want to get that below one. It's more than one right now. Once it gets more than one, that means the cases are increasing potentially, exponentially. Uh, so we're plateauing at a very high level yeah. right now. We have been for a month. But until we get those numbers down, I don't think the restrictions. Need the vaccine. But the, the, where the optimism is being expressed is this number of vaccinations that are occurring and yep. more vaccines on the horizon. So I think the restrictions easing are as likely as the weather improves. Okay, the uh, news conference coming up here in a few minutes. Margaret Nabbitsford, hi. Yes, does it not make more sense to give this new the two new vaccines that's only got, say, 64%, 67% to the young children or the students who mm -hmm. uh, are not affected with this uh, virus as much and save the ones that are the 87% uh, uh, that's uh, helpful to them and give it to the essential workers and, and the elderly or, you know, whoever needs it the most, use that one. I mean, okay. to give it 64% to these, to the ones that's going to save our life and, and then give mm -hmm. the, the 80-something percent okay. to the yep. children thank, thank and you, to thank the you. teenagers. That, thank you, Margaret. Yeah. Thank you, Margaret. Thanks, Margaret. I think the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> younger people actually get the virus in greater numbers than older people. Yeah. Uh, people over the age of 80 do not get the, the virus as, as nearly as much as people in their 20s and 30s. But 
the outcome of people who get the virus when they're older is much more dire and severe than younger people. So look for AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson to go to the younger age cohort. Right. Older people will likely continue to get the Pfizer and Moderna. Let's go to Wayne in Richmond. Hey, Wayne. Hey, Mike. Two questions. One, uh, I want to know why Quebec is leading the provinces uh, in vaccination per capita. They're at 5.12, and BC is only 3.47. And to a uh, key second point, um, I would suggest, if possible, your, net, your uh, radio station, if you can get in touch with the head of the Korean Center for Disease Control, Dr. Eun Kyung Jung. She uh, was times uh, one of the 100 most influential people in 2020, and she'll give you an outline of why Korea has okay. not approved okay. the AstraZeneca for seniors. Thank you, Wayne. 30 seconds. Yeah, so we don't, I don't anticipate, uh, I've never seen any th- suggestion that AstraZeneca is going to go to seniors. I mean, the, the, it's not as effective as Pfizer and Moderna. Pfizer and Moderna are proving to be very effective for uh, people in uh, long-term care homes, which are primarily people over the age of 70, 80, 90. And that's going to likely remain the same. AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, again, um, will likely go to younger age cohorts and not the older ones. All right, welcome back to the show. Over a dozen people took part in a gender reveal party over the weekend in Vancouver. Why are we still seeing these kind of parties being held? And what's the link between gender reveal parties and the obsession with social media? Our show contributor, John Jang, now looks for the answer. John. Hey, good morning, Mike. Police say that 17 people were gathered in a suite near Robson and Hamilton, downtown Vancouver, for a gender reveal party on Saturday night. Now, as you know, under the current provincial health order, gatherings with people outside of your immediate household, well, it's currently banned. And in this case, the host of this party was fined $2,300, which is the maximum currently allowed. But despite the warnings, despite the fines... Gender reveal parties keep happening. And I have one question. Why? To help us find an answer, hopefully, we are now joined by Jesse Miller. He's a social media educator at MediatedReality.com. Jesse, is there any explanation for why people continue to host these gender reveal parties? I'm fascinated to know if there's a direct correlation between these events and the rise of social media. Because you cannot have a gender reveal party without sharing it online with every single person that you know? You know, there may, there may be. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of emerging research about the correlation between social media and gender reveal parties, but anecdotally, we're seeing a lot over the past five years that really do go to the connections of trying to be the most creative, uh, trying to engage, um, you know, viral, viral uh, videos with likes, and interestingly enough, I mean, we are edging more and more towards a non-binary society, and there are parts of the gender reveal which do have a bit of a cringe factor. But if we look at these, you know, overarching themes of the way that, unfortunately, some of these negative events have occurred, whether it be forest fires in California or people blowing themselves up and dying because they're trying to get the biggest bang for the reveal of which kind of child they're having, um, there is a there is a component that does go into our social media connected world of unfortunately. Unfortunately, this is a bit of a byproduct that uh, people are uh, willing to push a bit of an, uh, of, a, of an edge to try and get uh, people to pay attention a little bit differently than maybe just the idea of we're having a boy or having a girl. 
I'm glad you brought that point up. Recently in Michigan, a 26-year-old man died at a gender reveal party because he was struck by an exploding cannon. Over the summer, a major wildfire started out as a gender reveal party because somebody tried to detonate an object that was filled with colored powder. And then, as you mentioned, society is moving towards non-binary identification. And here we have parents before the child is even born ready to label it boy or girl with no exceptions. Yeah, and again, they're still, so, they're still celebrating sex, not necessarily gender, right? And I think that's something that, I, again, we're, we're edging towards. So um, in that, if we think about the development of uh, ultrasound technology and being able to get ahead of that only natural surprise that really does exist. Um, but, but to be fair, I mean, to that process, people still do very much put their, their newborn children into those demographics. We still do that as well with the way that we identify on birth certificates. Um, but realistically here, I mean, there are two sides of this conversation. One, the provincial health order dictate you're not supposed to have people into a space the way that these people have and that's a direct violation and that just goes to the entitlement factor and then on the other side when we look at those larger overarching themes of people kind of going to the extreme there are social media components that go into the way that people are trying to project their lives and obviously this past year has been difficult so within that you know edging towards some form of normalcy means that people might try and kind of uh, connect their families connect their 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 friends to an event that's occurring in their life that allows them some, some feeling of happiness in this very difficult world. But again, if you're not willing to follow provincial health orders, the fines are legitimate. And at the same time, when we consider some of the ways that we do things in life, I mean, I can remember looking at baby photos where I'm dressed up in a preferred color because of the way that parents saw the world. But uh, at the end of the day, I'm also totally cognizant that in the 1800s, pink was the color of choice for boys. So why in the world would I want to dictate any other way? <laughs> oh, that's an excellent point as well. And I'm curious because social media is where all of these reveal parties eventually end up, whether it's broadcasted live on Facebook or on Instagram, or if you just happen to share photos of what the experience was like. Back in September, Mike spoke with the woman who is credited with inventing gender reveal parties from years ago, and she's an influencer. Now, that term, social media influencer, didn't exist 10 years ago. Gender reveal parties didn't exist 10 years ago. Obviously, this can't be a coincidence. Yeah, and again, that that does that does does go to what we see across the board, right? Everybody tries to do something. I mean, I'm guilty of it as well. You know, I pop the Bernie meme into something I think is funny, and some people might engage with it. Other people might think it's totally done. Uh, but within that too, just just what we do with this idea of cakes and trying to get people to you know blow up some colored dust or whatever it be. Um, social media plays a role in anything that we do. It's the rise of selfies. It's the rise of food pornography. It's the rise of anything where individuals can grab onto something. And there's a, there's a humanizing piece to that. I mean, if we even think about you know, going back in time, the Call Me Maybe, uh, you know, collective team sport uh, uh, sing-alongs. Those are things that allow people to have moments of happiness in, in anything that's going on in their lives. And that's not the negative. In fact, actually, a, a University of British Columbia Okanagan study recently highlighted that it's not necessarily wh whether or not we have social media, it's how we use it. And if it brings you happiness, it's not a bad thing. But at the end of the day, too, if you are taking pictures of your children, if you're dictating how your children's lives are going to unfold on social media, it's very different than the uh, childhood memories I have of parents kind of hoping for something and then the end result is different. It doesn't mean it turned out worse. It just means it turned out different than expectations. The thing now is that kids can go back and actually look at what their parents shared online and imagine a gender reveal party where one parent sees a gender that they're not happy with. I mean, how's that child going to react 20, 
20 years from now um, in that the, the it does kind of go back to the healthiness of relationships and within that if you're not having good relationships with people face-to-face, which is, again, very difficult to do today, um, how does it translate to a social media world? Fascinating stuff. He is Jesse Miller. He's a social media educator at MediatedReality.com. Jesse, appreciate you giving us some time here this morning. Thanks, John. Appreciate it.